You stand on the shore of the ocean watching the tide come in. You sense the call of the sea beckoning to take you in further. You step forward little by little not knowing what to expect, but expecting more. You keep going as the ocean calls calls you to enter in to deeper waters. everyone and welcome to the Deeper Waters Podcast. I am Nick Peters, your host, seeking to bring you the very best in Christian scholarship and apologetics. We've got an interesting show lined up today. We're covering a topic I've never covered on here before, but it's been one of interest to me. So you might have heard of something called the Shroud of Turin before. Now, I used to be one who was thinking, yeah, we've pretty much seen this as like a major myth and such, haven't we? And then I went to an apologetics conference and Gary Habermas was giving a talk on the Shroud. And Gary Habermas isn't a fool, he isn't gullible, as far as I know, anything like that. And the stuff he was saying, I'd never heard it before. And I found it quite fascinating. Now, a couple months or so ago, I was talking to him on the phone about something and he said, have you heard about this book called Test for Shroud? And I said, no, I haven't. He said, well, it's by a guy named Mark Antonacci, and I've, I read it on the flight somewhere and on the way back, and it's, I, I, I just quit put it down. You should see if you can get in touch with this guy. So I did, and things worked out great. We've got Mark Antonacci on the show right here. Let me tell you a bit about him. He is an attorney and author who has studied all aspects of a shroud for 34 years. That's nearly as long as I've been alive, which is pretty interesting to me. He wrote The Resurrection of a Shroud, the most comprehensive book ever written on a shroud, until his landmark book Test for Shroud was published last year. He received a Bachelor of Art degree from Western Illinois University in 1971 with a major in political science and a minor in history and graduated with distinction from John Marshall Law School with a Juris Doctorate degree in 1977. He gave a keynote address at the international conference held in Italy in conjunction with Shroud's exhibition in 2010 in which he proposed that a new series of sophisticated and minimally invasive tests be performed on the Shroud via atomic and molecular levels of his famous burial cloth. He has written the leading scientific hypothesis that not only explains the shroud's body image, but also its radiocarbon dating, its excellent condition, its pristine human blood marks, their sterile red coloration, the possible outdoor side imaging, coin features, and flower images, skeletal features, and all of its several unique features. This hypothesis has been published in a peer-reviewed scientific journal, and although it involves a miraculous event consistent with the resurrection, its occurrence can be scientifically tested. He asserts that these proposed tests could prove whether the shroud was irradiated with particle radiation, whether the source was the length, width, and depth of a crucified corpse in the cloth, when this event happened, where it occurred, the age of a shroud and its blood, and the identity of the victim. He asserts this technology could also test all of our natural or artistic explanations for a shroud's images or its radiocarbon dating. Well, that's uh, quite a lot there, but uh, Mark, welcome to the Deeper Waters podcast. Thanks, Nick. Now, I hadn't heard of you before, and some of my audience might not have. 
So for those who haven't, tell us a bit about how you got to be doing what you're doing. I mean, how does a lawyer get interested in the Shroud of Turin? I, I stumbled on the subject by accident as a result of an argument with an old girlfriend um, a little over 34 years ago. Mm. Um, uh, and the uh, argument was bothering me, so I, I went into work, thought I'd get something done. It was a Saturday. And... Um, same problem when you got there, so I thought I'll just go have some lunch and forget about things. And I I went um, this particular uh, newspaper that I never ever read uh, came out with its sports page on Saturday, so I figured okay I'll get the weekend sports edition of this paper and I'll get lost and forget my troubles. And I came across a a, a book that uh, Gary Habermas and Ken Stevenson had mm. written on the mm -hmm. Shroud of Turin called The Verdict on the Shroud. Mm -hmm. And it was uh, it was just a, a little small book review, if you will. Mm -hmm. And uh, this was the first book that described the findings from the, the first and only comprehensive scientific investigation of the Shroud of Turin in 1978. Mm -hmm. And the argument with the girlfriend was... To, to summarize it very briefly, I was an agnostic and she was a Christian and and that was causing a big problem to her in the relationship. Mm -hmm. And so I come across this, this review article and I say to myself, Well this is <laughs> this is all I I I I don't need, you know, right now. I don't need to even read this. But of course the background made you curious enough to read the argue, article and then once I started reading it I, 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 as an attorney, I couldn't believe the quality and the extent of the evidence. I never saw anything like it before in my life. And, and if it wasn't for that argument, I wouldn't have noticed. I wouldn't even read the, acquired the, that particular newspaper that carried the article, and let alone have read it. And, um, uh, <clears throat> me and the old girlfriend soon found there was many other things we could, we could argue about, but if it wasn't for her, I would have never come across the evidence, uh, the likes of which I've never seen before or since. Um, <clears throat> seeing I'm used with a number of aspects. First off, this is an old girlfriend. This isn't a proverbial girl girlfriend you went on to marry anyway, now is it? <laughs> <laughs> nope. Nope, not at all. Okay. Uh, I'm, I'm finding it amusing that here I'm starting an interview with you based on a book that Gary Habermas recommended to me. And your search started by a book from Gary Habermas as well. That's uh, pretty small, interesting. Yes, small world, isn't it? Uh-huh. Now, before we really leap into this whole topic, just in case there are some people out there who might not know, what exactly is the Shroud of Turin? It's, it's uh, in ancient times, people were buried in uh, shrouds. They're long burial garments the sh this one is over 14 feet long mm -hmm. and three and a half feet wide and they lay the corpse on the on the bottom part of a cloth that's completely spread out and they fold over the the top part of the cloth over him it's mm -hmm. like in a way if you will he's sandwiched in between two folds of a cloth mm -hmm. and um, this burial shroud, unlike any other shroud or blanket or cloth or sheet or, or anything that's covered 
a wounded or dead person, this one has the most remarkable, unprecedented images in all of history. Mm -hmm. And it also has uh, about 130 blood marks that are just as unique as the body image. Mm -hmm. And and they're the, the, the wounds and images of a man who's been um, scourged with a Roman flagrum. He's had a bundle of sharp pointed objects uh, placed over his head, such as a, a crown of thorns would have been uh, in ancient times in the East. Um, He's, ha he's got nail wounds in his wrist, which is the correct location. He's got nail wounds in his feet. He's got the blood flows on his, on his arms that are consistent with how a crucifixion victim would have moved on the cloth on the cross. He has a post-mortem side wound with a Roman lancia from which um, blood and watery fluid flows. He has... It, it appears that um, this man, um, that the events occurred in Jerusalem in the first century, and it, and, um, it has all the, the um, consistencies with Jesus' resurrection in terms of uh, time, place, instruments, executioners, um, and appearance. He looks just like the historical image of Jesus has been handed down to us um, for 15 centuries. Mm -hmm. Now, why is it called in the Shroud of Turin? It's kept in Turin, Italy. Uh, it's been there since uh, 1478. And uh, so that's where it gets its name from. And your contention is that this is actually the barrier cloth of Jesus, then, right? Yes. Mm. Now, there are uh, a lot of people who are very skeptical of that claim. I was thinking of asking you at the start if you could understand that skepticism, but based on what you told me in your introduction, I think you can understand the skepticism a lot of people have. Yes. The, the, you have to understand that, that thousands of tests have been performed on the Shroud of Turin. Mm -hmm. Only one test result is inconsistent with its authenticity mm -hmm. as Jesus' burial garment. And, and mm -hmm. that's the one that, that many people are aware of. In fact, that's the only one that, that many people are aware of. Mm -hmm. But in 1988, it was carbon dated to the Middle Ages. Mm -hmm. And it was a very controversially conducted test, but that's the one that everyone um, is aware of. Mm -hmm. But most people that study the shroud consider this to just be an aberrant piece of evidence. There's a number of explanations for it. And the more you learn about the shroud and the possible explanations for the images and for the radiocarbon date, the more you realize the evidence is not only consistent with its authenticity as Jesus' burial garment, Mm -hmm. But here's the real, real significance of it. The evidence indicates that, believe it or not, it indicates that every element of the passion, crucifixion, death, burial, and resurrection of the historical Jesus Christ occurred exactly as those events are described in the Gospels. Mm -hmm. Now, if 
I'm remembering correctly because I, I think I had have all my books packed because we're working on a move here. Your research foundation is called STIRP for looking into the shroud. Is that right? Uh, STIRP was the name of the scientific group that conducted the only scientific examination of the shroud in 1978. Okay. Um, my foundation is called Test the Shroud Foundation. Mm -hmm. Now, when we've got all these people back here about our researchers and such and wanting all these tests, such, are all of them people who believe the shroud's a real deal or do you have some skeptics among them as well? Oh yeah, they're skeptics. Mm -hmm. There's okay. there's skeptics involved. But mm -hmm. most people, when they look at the totality of the evidence, mm -hmm. they conclude that, that this appears to be Jesus' burial garment based on the evidence. Yeah, I like what Gary Habermas says. Uh, he says, you know, he goes about 70 or 80. He says, you, you ask me, it depends on which day of the week, but the thing is that there's just so much about it that's so hard to explain any other way. I mean, if, if it was one or two things that were nice little oddities and such, you'd say, yeah, maybe not, but your claim is there's about over 130, right? Yes, 130 blood marks, and there's probably tens of thousands of uniquely encoded um, <laughs> fibers on the length and width of the frontal and dorsal images. And, and the, the thing about the evidence is most of the evidence is unfakeable, mm -hmm. and it would be absurd to think that someone in the Middle Ages uh, cause these images and these blood marks. Absurd. Well, before we get into the part about the things being unfakeable, let's deal with the tests that people are thinking about to kind of clear away the roadblocks of skepticism. And this is the carbon-14 dating test. And, and we're not talking about your, your skeptical of it because, you know, you can say, well, we've done carbon-14 dating on items that we know are dated to a certain age and such, and we've had radically wrong tests, so maybe it's just, it, but your skepticism of a carbon-14 test isn't just, well, we don't trust carbon-14, but it's how the test was done, right? Exactly. Mm -hmm. A carbon-14 dating is a valid scientific technique. It's not infallible, but it is, it is quite valid. Mm -hmm. So but what happened in this test, then? Well, there's a number of hypotheses. The, the, the one that's growing in, 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 in terms of the amount of evidence and in terms of the, um, uh, how, how, how this can explain so many things in addition to the radiocarbon dating is, um, the evidence indicates that the image, the, the frontal and dorsal images were caused by radiation and actually, um, one form of radiation will will create carbon-14 atoms mm -hmm. in, in any object that is irradiated. Um, the evidence also appears that, that the radiation came from the body wrapped within the cloth. Mm -hmm. And if that's so, the one form of radiation, neutrons, would would create carbon-14 in the cloth just like it creates carbon-14 
in the atmosphere that spread everywhere on the planet. Neutrons create carbon-14 atoms. They do not exist naturally in nature. They're created in the atmosphere by neutrons. So when scientists measure the carbon-14 atoms mm -hmm. in the process of carbon dating an object, these atoms that are created by another source of neutrons, in this case, a body, those, those atoms would not be removed when they attempted to pre-treat and clean a sample prior to dating it. It would contaminate your sample. It would make your sample appear to be much younger than its actual age. If that event happened, the radiocarbon labs in 1988 would not have known which carbon-14 atoms were added from a radiating event by the body. Mm -hmm. and which carbon-14 atoms were, were created in the atmosphere and acquired by a flax plant at, and, and that was subsequently harvested and woven into a linen cloth. Mm -hmm. uh, I have to say, when I was reading your book and, we were talk and you were talking about the whole scientific thing, I'm sure you can understand what's happened to some people, but I was getting a bit confused because I don't speak the scientific language. Much and it really is a lot of heady scientific stuff in there. But is there any carbon fourteen methodology that you think they could do on the shroud that would be valid? Well, <coughs> carbon fourteen is a radioactive atom mm -hmm. or isotope. Well, neutrons. If neutrons irradiated cloth or blood, both of which are, are all over the shroud, it would create two other radioactive atoms called chlorine-36 and calcium-41. Mm -hmm. If you measured the cloth and the blood for the extent of these other two radioactive atoms, that would tell you that the cloth was irradiated by neutrons. The number and the distribution patterns of, of the chlorine-36 and calcium-41 atoms that would be on the cloth and in the blood could only have been caused by neutrons. And it could only be caused by neutrons from the body if they're in the distribution range that we that we contend they are. And you you could you could take samples from various parts of the cloth, and you could see whether there's um, a, a much larger than than normal amount of chlorine 36 and calcium 41 in the cloth and the blood, and at different locations. The, the, their amounts would increase the closer you got to the body image and it would also increase along with its position on the body image. Mm -hmm. So a part on the chest would have more of these than a part on the ankle mm -hmm. or the knee. Okay. The, you would not only know that it was irradiated with, with neutrons and you would know the number. Th these radioactive 
atoms are created at, at very well established and known rates, you would know that it was irradiated and and you would you would also know that the number of neutrons that were released would also have an effect in creating carbon-14 atoms. You would know from the number of chlorine-36 and calcium-41 atoms, you would know how many carbon-14 atoms were also created on that same sample. Mm -hmm. And you could, you could prove it was irradiated and how many carbon-14 atoms were added to that cloth and then, mm -hmm. then you could figure out its real age. Mm -hmm. And would it depend as well on where you get the sample? So you're going to use them cloth because it's my understanding carbon-14, the sample has to be destroyed. And since we're dealing with a rare object like this, we don't really, we can't, of course, destroy the whole shroud and do a test. Yeah. But in 19, when they did a 1988 test, they, they did something wrong with how they picked it out, didn't they? Well... It was, they were supposed to remove samples from various locations on the cloth. That, that did not occur. They took it from one location and cut it up into three, three pieces for each laboratory. Mm -hmm. that, was, that was one of the, the problems with the carbon dating. That was just one of the things that was wrong with it. But if, this, if the cloth was irradiated with neutrons from the body, every part of that cloth would have additional carbon-14 atoms added to it. And the numbers would increase as it got closer to the shroud or its position on the, on the body image itself. Mm-hmm. Now, let's talk about this image here, because I mean, the thing that we're discussing is whether the image is really, like, that's there, say, a photograph of Christ of a time caused by radiation, or if it's not. And some people could be looking at it and say, well, you know, I'm just looking at this image here, and I'm not an artist, but I would suspect that if you could get a really good painter, they could go and they could paint what this image looks like. So what's the big deal? I mean, how can we say it's unfakeable? We could just recreate another one just like it. No, no artist has ever painted an image with all the features found mm -hmm. on the Shroud of Turin. Uh -huh. um, you can test every artistic or naturalistic hypothesis you want to offer. They're mm -hmm. all testable. They're naturalistic or artistic. They, they all fail. Many of them fail miserably. Mm -hmm. I mean, what you're saying is that you know it's possible to reproduce what looks like the image on the Shroud but on a deeper level, you can't reproduce what is the shroud itself, right? Right. You can you can reproduce some of the features found on the shroud, mm -hmm. but but not all of them. There's um, 32 unique or remarkable features just on the body image alone, mm -hmm. and many of these features would not even have been visible to someone in the Middle Ages. Mm -hmm. it, they were only discovered with the advent of modern technology, such as photography mm -hmm. or, or computer imaging technology mm -hmm. or, or photographic enlargers and um, um, focal microscopes and things of that nature. Really, 20th century um, technology 
mm-hmm. revealed these features that that someone in the Middle Ages could not have seen them and could not have anticipated uh, their discovery five or six hundred years later. Yeah, so I also talk about some of the other things that you've said on there. A lot of people might be wondering about how you said the nails in the wrist are in the accurate position because usually in medieval art you'd expect to see the nails going through the hands of Jesus because the text you know, it says hands. But yes. if the nails were put through the hands, Jesus would have fallen right off the cross. Yes, that's true. Now, <laughs> the Greek word... Uh, for hands does include the wrist region Mm -hmm. as well as the palm but experiments have shown um, since the 1930s if you if you put a nail in the palm of a person's hand the weight of their body would rip right on through it could not support a crucifixion victim they found the remains of another crucifixion victim. In fact, the only remains of a crucifixion victim were found in 1968, mm-hmm. and this too was a first century uh, Jew who was crucified by the Romans in Jerusalem, and he has uh, nail wounds in the wrist. I think his name, they said, is Johannan, if I'm correct. Yes. <clears throat> and that, I mean, of course, that's just a small thing. Anyways, I mean, if that was the only thing we had going for a shroud, there wouldn't be much of a case. But you're talking also about other things that the person wouldn't have known. Tell us, like, some of this advanced technology, like one or two examples of the advanced technology that you'd have to have had in the Middle Ages that we've only just now discovered. Okay. Um, Let me give you an example before that of of one that just in in medieval times. Okay. um, By far and away, the most popular uh, subject of painting throughout history was the crucifixion. Right. And thousands of examples still survive. And you can search all those thousands of examples... And and you may find a few, I'm talking about a few, like four or five, where the wound is not in the the palm and it's it's in the wrist. Mm-hmm. There's some, there's a few that it's in the wrist region. Well, the man on the shroud, his thumbs are not visible. Mm-hmm. And that's because back in the nineteen thirties they discovered if they if they put a nail in the position of a cadaver on the on the wrist of a cadaver where it's indicated on the shroud it'll 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 go right into an area called the space of death dot which would not break any any bones on the body and it would hit the median nerve and it caused the thumb to contract into the palm mm-hmm. well a forger no no one represented Jesus with a a nail in the wrist and his thumbs absent from the image. That has never been seen except on the Shroud of Turin. That's a unique point of of the real reactions of a human being that's being imaged or photographed, if you will, on the cloth. Mm-hmm. But but there's lots of examples where technology shows you things that a forger could never have seen. For example, um, it has a there's a it contains a three-dimensional image 
on a two-dimensional surface. Okay, but what does that mean exactly? Okay, the shroud has various degrees of lightness and darkness. Mm -hmm. And the, the, uh, the density of the image is correlated to the closeness that the cloth, a naturally draped cloth was to an underlying body. It's the farther away from the body that the cloth was, the lighter it, it is. Okay. The closer it is, it's darker. Mm -hmm. um, no painter could paint such a correlation like that. Mm -hmm. And you couldn't even demonstrate such a correlation until the advent of computer imaging technology that can can show the relief from an image that's based on lightness and darkness. Mm -hmm. And in 19, um, 1976 that was discovered. In fact, that was an impetus for the formation of STIRP to, um, to get permission to go, to go study the shroud. The discovery that the image was, um, was had three-dimensional information on a two-dimensional surface. If, if a, a painter could never paint that, and another example is its photographic quality. Until the invention of photography, where you could see the photographic negative, which has all the detail on the shroud, Mm -hmm. if, if you look at the image on on this on the cloth itself, that is the negative image. It's it's faint, it's vague, it it's not sharp. But when you take a photograph of it, and you look on the photographic negative, there's where you get all the detail of a positive image on a photograph. Uh huh. Uh, a, some a medieval forger would have to anticipate the invention of photography in the 19th century to understand this. No one in history ever encoded a negative image that, that developed into a positive, detailed, highly resolved image in the 20th century, let alone one that, that had uh, three-dimensional directionality to it. Um, I can give you more examples if you'd like. Let's talk about the photography one for a little bit, because a lot of it started thing like the first time that people were taking pictures of a shroud, and someone goes into a dark room to make the pictures or do whatever they're supposed to, and they find something they weren't expecting to find, right? Yes. Okay, what exactly happened? Well... Secondo Pia, who was uh, an excellent amateur photographer, and he was also an attorney, mm -hmm. uh, in 1898 got permission to take a photo of the shroud. No mm -hmm. one was expecting anything to happen from it. It was set high on a wall. It was in a frame, a very um, uh, ornamental frame. And he got to take this picture in it at night when the exhibit had closed. So by time he took the picture, and in those days you had a big photographic plate that served as your negative. By time he took that home, went into his dark room, 
and started developing the picture, it's around midnight. Well, as the photographic negative is developing gradually, he starts seeing the frame of the sh of the that is surrounding the the cloth, and that has the vague, formless um, features that you're used to seeing on a on a photographic negative, and and the wall and the and and the part of the cloth that's around the body image is having all the natural attributes of a photographic negative. Mm -hmm. When he looks at the body image, the body image has all the detail of a photograph. Mm -hmm. Then he almost drops it. He is, he's so astounded to see the positive, detailed, resolved features on the, on the photographic negative. It is then that science discovers by accident that the image that they saw for centuries on the cloth was a negative image. Mm -hmm. It has light, dark reversal and left-right reversal. Mm -hmm. Now, what are some of the other features you were talking about, Michelle? I mean, just give us another one that's very okay. fascinating that's been coming about by 21st century technology. Okay. Many of the 130 scourge marks were not even visible on the cloth with the naked eye, but they're visible on the photograph of the shroud. Mm -hmm. um, computer imaging technology was able to determine that there's no two-dimensional directionality on the image. In other words, if a painter had painted the image on the shroud, computer imaging technology could detect brush strokes going from right to left or left to right or any angle up and down or in between. You'd see some directionality to the brush strokes. Mm -hmm. when, they, when they examined the body image, they saw no two-dimensional directionality. Think of it as latitudinal or longitudinal directionality. There was none. The only directionality that was found is the third directionality, straight mm -hmm. up and down. Picture, picture somebody about to lay a cloth over a, 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 a body that's laying on its back, and, and the cloth will naturally drape over the body, and it, it parts of the cloth will be relatively flat, and then some of the cloth will be sloping downward at an angle or sloping upward at an angle. Mm -hmm. But the directionality to the cloth is straight up and down from the body to the cloth or from the cloth to the body. This had never been seen before and it was only realized when you applied computer imaging technology to the Shroud of Turin. Mm -hmm. Now, when we're talking also about the whole scourging thing, uh, what we what mean is that before the man in the shroud, and I, I like how we're using that terminology, it's the same terminology that Gary Habermas uses as well, that the man in the shroud underwent something that the Romans did where they would ta take the prisoner and have him just be beaten regularly, usually with a whip, a cat of nine tails that would pretty much rip their skin out, right? 
Yes, it, it would. It would um, not as severely as the movie. Um, the that, Passion no, of the Cross. Yes, not not that severely, but yes, there would be a lot of bleeding. Yeah, there there were even some cases where some people died from for scourging alone. Yes. So when you have these images come up, what we're saying so far is if a medieval forger had done this, he'd have to be able to paint in 3D to paint a negative and to paint an image that would kind of go up and down, like you said, right? Yes. But what are some other things that this forger would have to do? What's another example? Well, he'd have to paint with real human blood, mm. something that's never been done before. Mm. And he'd have to paint images of blood, not only in actual blood, but they'd have to take the, the, the shape and form of blood that formed and flowed on a body. And it has to be real coagulated blood, the type that forms on a, on a body when it's bleeding. Mm -hmm. And this has never been done before mm -hmm. in history, and you can't do it now. You mm -hmm. can experiment and try to paint in blood, and all the features are extremely realistic. Um, and they're not just painted on the cloth. They're embedded in the cloth, and they appear on the backside in the same shape and form, almost as good as on the, on the inner side, mm -hmm. and um, and some are so faint. Some of the scourge marks are so faint, uh, you only see them when when you develop um, the image with with photography. And some of the blood marks are actually encoded in the same way that the body image was encoded mm -hmm. and are not are not blood at all and this too was not visible until 1987 mm -hmm. one of the stirp scientists discovered that as well in, in subsequent follow-up studies um you you a forger couldn't see these things and the blood marks are all unbroken on the edges and it's serum around the edges it, you couldn't paint it so thick or, or remove the cloth from it. You, you couldn't do that without breaking the edges as well. Mm -hmm. um, and, and you'd have to get a mixture of, of blood and watery fluid as well that, that wasn't, wasn't mm -hmm. testable or realized until the 20th century. Now, I'm curious, when we talk about the blood that's found on the shroud, has anyone ever done anything like DNA testing on this blood or anything? Yes, there needs to be more, but in the 1990s, that's one of the things that indicates it's human blood. The human, mm -hmm. a, human DNA uh, testing did indicate it was not only ancient, but it was an X and Y chromosome of, of a male human. Mm -hmm. um, there's human immunoglobins. Mm -hmm. human albumin, human hemoglobin, mm -hmm. uh, and human whole blood serum. Mm -hmm. yeah, I, I ask that because there are a lot of people I know who wonder that, you know, if this is Christ, and 
if the biblical account of him being virgin born for instance is true we have radically different DNA than the rest of us but of course we just as well say if God's capable of creating a fertilized egg in a woman creating all the DNA is not going to be much of a problem no 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 wouldn't um um they need to do more follow-up studies mm -hmm. um the including dna um as well as uh testing the shroud at the atomic and molecular levels to to acquire far more information than was ever acquired 38 years ago um when Stur when the, the stirp examined the shroud mm -hmm. well let's go a little bit into the history of the shroud also we start talking about that examination that you want done because a lot of people will say well this shroud just showed up around the time of the 14th century then and that's when the 1988 carbon dating tested it to and even back then there was someone who was saying that he'd been told it was a confessed forgery so why should we take it seriously then well the um allegation of a forgery first of all you can prove it was not painting um, Sturp proved that in 1978 um, that it could not be painted uh, well one of the things let me tell you is um, the body image the body image does not consist of any paint or powder the body image doesn't even consist of any materials of any kind the body image consists of what's called oxidized dehydrated cellulose. Think of the um, the cheapest form of manufactured cellulose that I know is newspaper. Uh, picture a, a, a folded up piece of newspaper laying flat on your porch mm -hmm. and it sits out in the sun for several days. And the outer layers of the newspaper start turning yellow but if you look on the inner layers of the newspaper, it's still a, a whitish or grayish color like it was when it was first delivered. Um, what happens is the outer layer of the newspaper is oxidizing and dehydrating and turning yellow. That's what the body image is consists of. It doesn't consist of any paint or anything like that. And the the subtle differences between the more yellow body image and the less yellow background image the eye can't even distinguish the differences unless it stands about 15 feet away from the cloth so how's a guy going to paint when he can't when he has to stand 15 feet away from the cloth to even see what he's painting and he's got to paint <laughs> in a way without using any materials. The, the the image has got to develop over time by exposure to air and light. Mm -hmm. You can't paint that. Um, I can give you lots of other features. The, the body image lies on the most superficial fibers of the threads. Picture your arm as a thread and okay. the the body image would lie on the hairs of your arm and it would only lie on the topmost two or three fibers or hairs of your arm you and and 
the the man is about five foot nine and a half or so, and he has normal dimensions. But picture trying to get every one of those fibers uniform and superficial on the length and width of both images. That's tens of thousands of body image fibers, and they're not only uh, on the superficial topmost fibers. They all have the same uniform intensity and they're colored 360 degrees around the fibers. You mm -hmm. cannot paint like that. Um, it's impossible. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but it still doesn't explain, though, what some skeptics would say about why does this shroud only show up in the 14th century? And we don't really have a record of it beforehand, do we? The, the, the record in Europe starts mm -hmm. in the 1350s. Okay. Um, the the um, history of the shroud prior to Europe is considered to to uh, it's thought to have been in Turkey in Edessa, Turkey, uh, where it's known as the image of Edessa, and then it's thought to have went to Constantinople, where it's called the Mandelian. Mm-hmm. And there's a great deal of uh, descriptions that match the Shroud of Turin that you'd see with the naked eye, which is all they could see the Shroud um, until the 20th century, until 1898. Um, there's not only physical descriptions, um, there's a, an entire line of um, artistic uh, pictures of paintings that appear to have m many of the same features that are found on the shroud as you see it with the naked eye. The, there's uh, uh, many theories that that the shroud of Turin in, in various, at times it's, it only had a facial image. The cloth would have been folded and all you saw was a facial image and other times uh, it was unfolded and, and you, you see a full-length image. Mm -hmm. You find similarities of the facial images and even the full-length images, not only in descriptions, but in, in actual surviving uh, paintings. And, and they, 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 they match the shroud in terms of little poker holes in the cloth and in terms of uh, features, features on the body. Mm -hmm. So it's thought that the image of Edessa was a very famous image. And by the way, the Shroud of Turin has, uh, uh, if, if the shroud was folded so that only the face was appearing, uh, it would have um, seven fold marks along the length of the shroud. Um, scientists have found the fold marks across the shroud in six of those locations. The seventh, the place where a seventh line would be has a lot of uh, um, burn holes and scorch marks um, on the shroud and it's difficult to tell but they think <clears throat> possibly you can, you can see the fold line on the seventh location as well. But that's quite a coincidence that you would have fold line patterns that that science can see centuries later um, that was on that shroud. It's it's very curious. Um, 
you know, when you talk about burn marks and such, that is because the shroud was caught in a fire once, wasn't it? Yes. Okay. What happened there? In 1532, it's kept in Chambéry, France, at a cathedral. Mm-hmm. Um, the cathedral catches on fire. The shroud is inside a reliquary that uh, has a silver lining on the inside. Mm-hmm. The lining gets very hot, probably some silver drips onto the cloth and or the cloth uh, in a folded fashion um, rubs up against one of the sides of the interior lining because when you they, they when they realized it was fire, three monks ran ran into the cathedral and grabbed the reliquary and carried it outside and threw some water on it. Mm-hmm. Fortunately, it only damaged the image from the man's elbows to his shoulders. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can see burn holes and scorch marks along the sides of the of the full-length frontal and dorsal images. Mm-hmm. And, and they're in a pattern. You can you can tell from the pattern of scorch marks and burn holes uh, how the shroud was folded at that particular time. Mm-hmm. Now, I like something else that you talk about in your book, because one thing that Gary told me about the book was that you did go some into the minimal facts, as he calls them, the crucifixion, barrier, and appearances. Now, a lot of people could look and say, well, geez, you know, you think of Paul had all that, he could also say, and by the way, guys, we also have the burial cloth of Jesus, and it's got this remarkable image on there. And he, he never says that. There's not a mention of a shroud outside the Gospels in the New Testament at all. And you got a theory as to why the shroud isn't talked about that much, don't you? Yes, yes. Um, the shroud uh, is clearly mentioned in all, all four all four Gospels. Mm-hmm. Um, there's no image mentioned in the Gospels or the New Testament on on Jesus's burial garment, and I hint, I touched on that earlier. The image when I the, the image develops over time as a result of the radiation and natural aging. That example that I used with the newspaper. Um, the cloth or the the newspaper is receiving sunlight all weekend long in my example mm-hmm. and that's why it yellows what probably really happened is the shroud receives radiation in just a fraction of a second the rest of the time it, it's all natural aging when gee back over 30 years ago um, some friends and and I were doing some experiments. So one of them had a bachelor's degree in chemistry. And what we would do is we would shine just a circle of, of ultraviolet light from a little um, instrument that he had that, that showed a circle of ultraviolet light. And we would shine it onto a square piece of cloth. And no matter whether it was for a second or several minutes or 10 minutes or a half hour or whatever when we turned the light off and we looked at the cloth you couldn't tell a, a thing well what we next did 
was we took this cloth that we shined a circle of light onto and we put it in an oven at a low temperature for an hour or two or whatever. And then we took the cloth out and the part of the cloth around the circle had had turned darker or browner or, or straw yellow, if you will. But the part where that received the circle of UV light was darker than the background. Mm -hmm. It it a they both the, what this uh, mimicked was it it was artificial aging, and this is what happens to the cloth. The shroud mm -hmm. was originally white mm -hmm. when it was first uh, manufactured. In fact, if you cut a fiber in half, it's still white on the inside. Over time, the whole cloth has yellowed as mm -hmm. an H, just like all cloths and linens do. But the part where the body image is mm -hmm. aged faster, or it got darker or more yellow than the background. So the cloth does develop over time and experiments with radiation on a much more sophisticated level than we did ourselves mm -hmm. with our wives uh, oven um, proved just that so mm -hmm. there would not have been an image on the cloth when Peter and John ran into the tomb if they even bothered lifting the cloth up if they ever looked at the cloth afterward they or other uh, disciples or apostles had looked at the cloth, there would not, would not have been an image um, right after Jesus' resurrection. Mm -hmm. But over time, as the cloth got yellow, as the background got yellow, the image would have gotten even more yellow. And mm -hmm. um, that that is consistent with the Gospels. To believe, believe it or not, it's quite consistent with the Gospels that if the image was formed by radiation there would not have been an image at the time the radiating event occurred and there's no there's no image mentioned in the gospels and mm -hmm. there's some history of the shroud some of it it may be dubious history or it's in apocryphal sources or it may be legendary but there is a mention of Jesus's burial shroud throughout the first several centuries but no mention of an image until they start talking about the image of Edessa which historians think was found hidden away um, in the walls in Edessa around the 6th century when many of the city's walls had to be rebuilt because of flooding mm -hmm. and, and the image of Edessa has a known history in the 6th century and, and it, in description and in copies it looks very, very much like you would see when you looked at the shroud with the naked eye. Mm -hmm. So they think the mm -hmm. and the image of Edessa was famous. The traditional image that we all know of on Jesus began as a result of the image of Edessa. So mm -hmm. there is I we've just touched on some of the evidence as to why it, it, it could have a historical connection um, in Odessa and in Constantinople, but it's mm -hmm. not the hard um, empirical evidence that you get from science. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering if this is the kind of thing you're <clears throat> talking about with this, and 
if it's the same principle or not and because like I said I don't speak scientifically very much so if I'm totally off you can tell me this but I remember when I was younger maybe about 20 or 25 years or so ago I had one of those Polaroid instant cameras where you take a picture of someone and you, and you pull it out at first it'd be blank but then you just wait a few seconds and the image there would suddenly show up and everyone could look and say, oh, there's a picture of us right yeah. there. Is that the same kind of principle? Yes, but it's, in, in whereas it would take about a minute for the Polaroid to develop, mm -hmm. right. uh, a picture, I don't know, uh, um, a decade or a century or something like that as an analogy to the minute on the Polaroid. Right. So when, when the apostles came and got this, they, they might hold on to the shroud because, you know, this was what Jesus was buried in. And then yes. all of a sudden, centuries later, it'd be, oh my gosh, look at what we really do have here. Well, there's also some um, mm -hmm. semi-legendary accounts that, that says uh, Thaddeus mm -hmm. took it over to Edessa and he took it there in the first century. First century Jews um, would not probably, while while they would have been attached to Jesus' burial garment, the uh, the Jewish uh, laws forbid you to to have any garments that were in contact with a dead person. Because it just uncleanness. Exactly, exactly. So the cloth went over, according to these accounts, it went over to Odessa, where they did have in the in the decade of the 50s the first century in the 50s AD uh, where there was uh, um, a king and and who had an interest in Christianity mm -hmm. and was supposedly uh, converted as a result of of the of this cloth going over there mm -hmm. and and it may have had an image by then 20 years later it may have st started to have a faint image and well anyway the, the 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 region reverts back to pagan religions mm -hmm. and so the the shroud it's it's thought and the image of Edessa was hidden away and it wasn't rediscovered until centuries later when when flooding caused caused Edessa to rebuild its city walls on three different occasions in the 6th century and they think on one of these occasions they find it because the stories about the image of Edessa do not begin until the 6th century and they don't describe its miraculous properties until the 6th century mm -hmm. and um, so sometime between the first and at least the sixth century, the image could have developed, and it could have been as as as, as little as uh, you know twenty years later, or as long as five hundred years later. Mm -hmm. I'd like to remind everyone I'm Nick Peters, and this is the Deeper Waters podcast. This week, my guest is Mark Antonacci. We're talking about his book, Test the Shroud on the Shroud Tour. And oh, wait, if you're curious about last week's. We, I did do the interview about it. Something went wrong. Somehow we lost that. Hopefully we can get it back up again. So if you're looking for a Chris Tearing podcast, we might just have to redo it. I'm not sure at this point. But it, 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 it's all on my head. So, I mean, sometimes it happens. Um, if you're here next week, 
you're not going to get anything because I'm not going to be doing a show next week because if you've kept up my blog and such, we're in the process of getting ready to move to Atlanta so I can assist Mike Lacona with his ministry work down there. And so that whole week I'm not going to be doing any blogging. I'm not going to be doing any podcasts because I'm not sure how long it's going to take us to get everything set up. I don't want to do any arrangements and let someone down and such. But if you're there the week after my 27th, if there's been anything that's been holding us back to Knoxville for quite a while, and someone says, yeah, this is something that we really like. And so, I mean, we like having friends and family nearby. But if there's one thing in particular, we've loved our church here, and we still do. And I think my church really does apologetics right. And the thing is, a lot of people probably don't even know it. But I'm going to be having my current pastor, Matthew Peepers, come on. And we are going to be talking about church planting and how the church can go out and reach people in this modern age with the gospel. Because our church, the point, does a lot of things that would be considered revolutionary, maybe unconventional and such, and are still orthodox. I'm not going to give them worried. I don't think we do anything immoral, but... We, you'll find us at places you wouldn't expect to find a church. So I'm going to be talking to the pastor about how he brought this about and what message he'd like to give to other pastors and especially how apologetics plays over in all this. But for now, I'm interviewing Mark Antonacci talking about his book, Test for Shroud. Now, one other thing I'd like to say about the history here is that... Uh, and it surprised me, I read this, I think it was Ian Wilson who did this research. But yes. that uh, when we look at paintings of Jesus, for the longest time, Jesus has no facial hair whatsoever. And then all of a sudden, every painting has him with a beard on it. And you think this is tied to the shroud? Yes, in the, in the first five centuries, yeah, he's beardless. Um, he's. Um, his appearance is completely different and is quite varied, but beginning in the sixth century, the traditional image of Jesus with long hair down to his shoulders um, begins, and it still continues to this day. Mm -hmm. um, and and that's a result of the image of Edessa. Um, I'd like to also look at some of the other features of a shroud that are quite unique and we can get to more of the advanced scientific ones later on if we have time but for someone like myself who doesn't speak the scientific language this kind of stuff to me is very interesting let's talk about for instance the coins on the shroud what's so unusual about coins on the shroud well there's two features about the coins that are interesting. Mm -hmm. um, like many artistic representations from the 6th through the 13th century that are, are seem to be based upon the shroud or, or, or have that are very similar to the image that you see with the naked eye on the shroud, coins, uh, there's now three very impressive coins from 692 to 695 um, that were um, minted um, at, by the Byzantine Empire by Justinian II 
that are very also very similar to the features seen on the shroud. Some of them very very similar, and and the pictures are in my book. By the way, my book's available on Amazon.com uh, mm -hmm. as well as our website testtheshroud.com. Mm -hmm. But um, there may also be an image of a first century lepton that was minted in the years 29 to 32 uh, in the reign of Pontius Pilate. Uh, there may be features over the right eye of the man in the shroud like that. Mm -hmm. And, and um, there, there is also some features, uh, some images of, um, of flowers. Uh, on the man in the shroud. I don't see, um, I see a couple myself, but I'm, I'm not a, um, a pollen specialist or, or an imaging specialist, but, but some think they also see features from other um, flowers that, that grew only in Jerusalem um, and in the springtime, also imaged on the shroud. Again, I don't see as many as some people claim, but I do see some, and I do have um, some of these uh, certainly coin images and also flower images in my book. And now something else interesting about the coin image, as I understand that, it looks like on the coins there's a misspelling of a word, and well, first off, it kind of surprised me to think about a forger would key in and do something like the, the microscopic writing in that time but also we've found coins I think seven of them with this exact same misspelling is that right yes there's four of them like that like with that misspelling and and a, a, a forger could never have put the details of the letters or the, or the the lightest um, that may be seen on the coin on on visible on close-ups of the of the shroud taken over the eye um, he could have never encoded such small features he wouldn't have encoded a misspelling on the shroud mm -hmm. he, he just wouldn't have done there's also some other odd features on the shrouds body image some of which were not visible until the 20th century but even if they were visible on the negative image on the body a forger wouldn't have put on there. There are odd features that don't make any sense. Um, uh, but no, he could never have put uh, lettering on a coin. And why would he misspell it if he wanted to put authenticity? But there are four Roman coins from that era, Pontius Pilate leptons, that, that are known to exist today that have that misspelling. Now what are these unusual features you were just talking about that we didn't even know about until this time. Okay. There, there's some secondary body image features. Um, the man's, you see it on the positive image, but is the, his right thigh, the part of his body from his, his, part of his leg from his knee to his hip is thicker than his left leg. No mm -hmm. forger would put that on there. But as I explain in the book, it, it's a result of the cloth collapsing over and around the legs 
of of from a from a, a body giving off radiation and disappearing. And the left leg is a little bit upraised because it was probably folded over the right leg when the man was on the cross and when he he died in this position and the left leg is held in the upraised position by rigor mortis and when you lay someone down in the cloth and the body disappears while it gives off radiation in a fraction of a second as that cloth fell down it would have been folded in a certain direction it would have kept that position when it fell and it would make the right leg um, laterally distorted but a forger would would never put that in it would look ridiculous mm -hmm. there's there's uh there's some horizontal marks at the neck of the man in the shroud and it's simply um, a picture of cloth that's draped over the chin and beard of a man that's now going to fall down and it's going to encode some of the part of the throat above the Adam's apple and at the Adam's apple and it's going to come out in an awkward sort of unusual horizontal mark um, uh, before the chest and and uh, look again his fingers are longer than normal that's mm -hmm. because his bones are probably getting reflected uh, by a form of, of radiation uh, think of it as an x-ray if you will um, and when the cloth is folded over um, the, the fingers that are slightly bent when the cloth falls through that and you then hold the cloth out straight it makes the, the fingers appear artificially longer than they really were but really they were just folded around the fingers that were slightly bent around the lower hand mm -hmm. um, there's several odd features like that that a forger just wouldn't have put on there just like he would not have misspelled the lettering on a on a first century coin. Mm -hmm. uh, I think I remember reading some about that in a book several years ago. In fact, I'm, I was just now trying to look it up, to, and it was about the Chartreux, and I think it was called Resurrected, where the person talked about putting like a cloth on their face and then noticing that it was different when they were sitting up. Something along those lines. Do you know what I'm talking about? Um, Gil Lavoie uh, had a book by that title, and he he calculates that the marks, yes, the the blood marks. Um, I go into at some length in my book, and I take it one step farther than than uh, Dr. Lavoie did. Mm. Um, the blood marks are actually, if you look at them, they're encoded over the hair well when when and, and you have you actually have arterial and venous blood on the on the forehead of the man in the shroud well blood would bleed from the scalp mm -hmm. where the where the veins and arteries are mm -hmm. but the blood is actually encoded into the sides and the top of the hair 
on the frontal image and on the dorsal image the blood is encoded mm -hmm. it appears to be encoded on the hair that's that's an example that the body image and the blood marks were formed in different ways and it, it gets to be a long explanation which is hard to describe on the radio yeah but but it's it's another example that a forger would not do that, and yet these blood marks have all the intimate details that that only uh, an intimate contact between the body and the cloth could reveal that you could you could never have painted, and that could not occur naturally. Now, with these kinds of medical things and such, do we have uh, any? <clears throat> like peer review works by groups of doctors who have examined the shroud and said, yes, this is what's going on with the man in the shroud. Um, there was uh, physicians that belonged to STIRP. Um, uh, physicians have been able to... You can learn a lot about the body from the photographs mm -hmm. of the shroud. Um, and physicians have been examining the shroud um, really since uh, 1900 to 1902. The first anatomist was a guy named uh, Professor Yves Delege. He was an agnostic too. Mm -hmm. um, in the 1930s, probably the most famous uh, physician to examine the shroud was Pierre Barbet. Um, Dr. Robert Buckland, who was also a STIRP member, published many articles um, many pathologists have studied the shroud too. It, without doubt, uh, this is the, the picture of a dead human male mm -hmm. who suffered a series of wounds. They all appear to have been uh, inflicted with Roman instruments and, and, and the type of instruments that the foot soldiers um, who, were the, who were the people that were drafted to perform crucifixions back in the Roman empires. It's a type of instruments that they would have carried and mm -hmm. used. Mm -hmm. um, I don't think there's any doubt that that this is a human body. Mm -hmm. And to try to uh, give the reader maybe a summary of it, the the all the unique features on the body image. That's that's the, the, there's 32. Uh, remarkable features that I've mentioned in the book that are that are distributed over tens of thousands of body superficial body mm -hmm. image fibers only one agent can account for all of those features and that is radiation mm -hmm. uh, for let me just give you one little example um, hair and skin possibly coin flowers skeletal features they're all encoded equally. Uh, some natural hypothesis is not going to encode hair and skin and, and skeletal features. There's even a possibility of dental, of, of, of the front teeth being imaged on there. They're not all going to react in the same way, mm -hmm. but all these features can, can, can all be encoded or accounted for by radiation. Mm -hmm. um, um, radiation counts for all of these features. There's a number of items of evidence that indicate the source of this radiation 
could only have been mm-hmm. that dead body in the cloth. Mm-hmm. And to to tell you what what is so exciting about the shroud is that the the leading hypothesis for its its radiocarbon dating and for the cause of its images and, and where the evidence mm-hmm. consistently points is that the form of radiation was particle radiation. Mm-hmm. Think of particle radiation as um, consisting primarily of neutrons and protons. Mm-hmm. And and the protons cause the image and the neutrons cause several effects. They, they're just the opposite. Protons are very um, attenuating. They don't, they stop at the first thing they hit such as the superficial mm-hmm. fibers on a cloth, but, but think of neutrons as passing right on through the cloth and, and causing a number of, of effects that are, if you will, non-image effects mm-hmm. um, on the cloth. But if these radioactive atoms are on the cloth and if they were caused by, if, if their source is the body, you can prove that if you tested the shroud at the atomic levels and not only that you could you could you could calculate the actual age of the cloth in the same way that you calculate when this event occurred and you could you could even calculate where this event occurred if if Jesus' burial tomb is intact, you could prove that this event occurred in his burial tomb. Mm-hmm. You, could, you, could, you could have an extensive amount of objective and independent evidence that, that every element of the passion, crucifixion, death, burial, and resurrection occurred exactly as they're described in the Gospels. With... with with, and when I say an extensive amount of evidence, I haven't I haven't mentioned atomic evidence in the sense that if you just took a few samples from from strategic locations on the shroud, you would have billions of items of unfakeable evidence mm-hmm. in the form of these radioactive isotopes that could only have been formed um, by neutron radiation. Mm-hmm. Well, I'd like to remind everyone at this point of the show that I am Nick Peters, and this is the Deeper Borders Podcast. Mark Antonacci is my guest, talking about his book, Test for Shroud, a look at the Shroud of Turin, very much in depth. And I'd like to remind you all that uh, everything we do here, it's listener-supported, and we really depend on people like you. And we do thank you all for your great donation that came in during the a fundraiser that Mike Lacona had to get my wife and I to come down and work with him. That fundraiser was successful. And we owe a great deal to you for that. That's why we're going to be going to Atlanta. We're going to be moving this Wednesday. But if you want to uh, donate and help us out, go to my website at deeperwaters.ddns.net. Now, there you'll see a link on the side that says Help Support the Work of Deeper Waters Christian Ministries. Now, if you do that and you click on that link, you will go to Risen Jesus Ministries, which is, if you listen to the show, that's the ministries of 
Ministry of Mike and Debbie, which who are my in-laws, and uh, you just make your donation there, and you contact me or Allie or Mike and Debbie and say, hey, I made a donation. I want to go to Nick Peters. I want to go to Deeple Barters. They will make sure we get that donation. It will be tax deductible. And if you can become a monthly donor as well, well, you're the bread and butter of what we do. And hopefully in the future we'll have a really good way of showing you how much we appreciate it so we can give away and such. Right now all we can just say is thank you so much for donating to us. Um, if you want to find some other ways to support us as well, you can go to Amazon and you can do a search for me. And you'll find a few books, one that I have written myself an e-book, the uh, A Creed for the Ages, a look at the Apostles' Creed, since I do attend the Lutheran Church and we say the Creed regularly, I decide I should write a book and let the people know what they're really saying. And if you want, you can find some of the books I've co-written, such as Defining Inerrancy or Groundless or Christian Answers with Generations Questions, or even when I did a debate with an atheist, God and Natural Disasters. And finally, uh, guys, unfortunately it might be a bit late for this, but if you want to try and make up for things here, because tomorrow is Valentine's Day, and uh, since uh, we're going to be traveling tomorrow, I already gave my wife a Valentine's gift today, well, guys, I, I really encourage you, don't wait till Valentine's to give the gifts necessary. Be giving gifts all year long. But if you want to give something really special on a Valentine's Day, if you're thinking of popping a question or something like that, just go to our webpage and you can support our ministry through jewelry. You can buy a piece of jewelry for your wife to show her how much she means to you, or for your girlfriend to show her how much she means to you as well, and maybe that you want her to mean a little bit more to you. And you go to the page of Premier Jewelers, use the code word LOVE, and our friend Lena Clester handles it. Whatever you purchase, 25% of that will go to deeper waters. So, guys, this is a win-win for you. You get a wonderful gift for your bride or the lady in your life. You get some wonderful brownie points that way, and you support a ministry at the same time. Now, Mark, do you have an organization or a charity you'd like to see people donate to? Um, <clears throat> Test the Shroud Foundation is conducting scientific research in all phases that we talked about. We're, we're specifically focusing on, on advanced scientific techniques that, <clears throat> that could actually demonstrate um, whether a miraculous event occurred to the man in the shroud mm -hmm. and, and not only when it happened and where it happened and the age of the cloth but you could easily um, identify who this victim is mm -hmm. um, and um, you the significance uh, um, uh, of the overall work is is um, you, you could actually by proving the the these events in history actually took place, you'd be proving that the central premises of Christianity um, is, is corroborated by mm -hmm. an extensive amount of objective and independent evidence, which, which no other religion or ism, whether it's 
atheism or agnosticism or whatever the ism is, none of these isms uh, have any objective and independent evidence to corroborate their central premises, whereas you would have billions of items to do so with with Christianity and as a as a former agnostic um that made a big impression on me. You know, I'm uh, remembering right now that uh, I interviewed someone I think it was in November of last year that uh, he might work for your organization, but I know he's done some research and speaking on the shroud of he has a book Visions of Jesus, Philip Wybe. Does he work with you all or I've heard of him, but no, he's not part of our uh, foundation. Okay. Now, if people want to donate to your foundation, where do they go to? Um, they could go to testtheshroud.com. It also pops up when you when you go to testtheshroud.org. Okay. And I'm just now, in fact, doing just that, just so I can see what happens here. But, yeah, testtheshroud.com, Mark and Tenacci's, and it's tax deductible, isn't it? Yes, it is. Now, one other aspect of the uh, material that I'd like to talk about on the show that I find pretty interesting is, well, this is going to be pretty interesting since we're talking about Valentine's Day here. Well, I just was with it's a donation thing, but flowers. And we're not talking Valentine's Day flowers, <laughs> are we? Uh-huh. So what do flowers have to do with a Shroud of Turin? Well, um... Some Israeli botanists have, um, um, they started doing their work based upon the pollens. There's, um, pollens have been identified from um, uh, the Jerusalem and the surrounding area. And it's not that large of an area, but, but they're found, all the, all the pollens that have been found on the shroud, all but three originate in Jerusalem. And some of these these other few pollens are also found uh, in Turkey. Um, you would think that a larger number of the pollens found on the shroud um, are also exist in, in Europe, which which they do. But the the greatest number, and 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 just about most of these flowers. Um, are found from the Middle East and most of them originate in Jerusalem. It, it indicates that the ancient technique of redding uh, flax and then weaving that into a linen, it, it's a strong indication among many that the cloth originates in Jerusalem. Mm -hmm. uh, but the pollen evidence was shown to some Israeli botanists and they started finding a number of flower images that may also be reflective images on the scene on the shroud. They don't have the, all the properties that the body image does, but they may have been thrown around the edges or sides of the body. Um, they all, they, they not only are, are found in the area of Jerusalem, but they all uh, bloom in the springtime. So the significance of the flowers were um, that, that they were picked in Jerusalem in the spring. Now there's other evidence. Limestone has been found um, on the shroud itself that matches the same rock shelf that Jesus was buried in. Um, there's um, other indications that 
the man is a Jew, and he was buried according to detailed mm-hmm. uh, burial customs. Uh, coins were also placed. Um, I forgot to mention this. Coins were also placed over the eyes of Jewish burial victims in one era, in one era, and that was the Second Temple era, mm-hmm. where they've now found a, a many tombs where coins are also. Um, uh, some of them found in the back of the skulls. When, when the eye socket uh, rots out or deteriorates, the coins drop to the back of the skull. Mm-hmm. Many of them, many of them are found in tombs where the skulls are are, are intact, and also that where the skulls have have deteriorated over time. Mm-hmm. But they're there for a purpose. They've even found an intact full skeleton. Um, with the coins still laying over the eyes of a of a Jewish burial victim mm-hmm. in in Israel, uh, not that far uh, from Jerusalem, mm-hmm. it's it's really amazing. If mm-hmm. there was if there's coins over the eyes of the man in the shrouds, um, it would be consistent with Jewish burial practices. Um, and if you examine the shroud at the atomic and molecular levels that I call for, it could tell you uh, whether this imaging is uh, is from a Jewish uh, is from a, a a coin or from a a um, a flower or or what what the elements are in that parts of the fibers that contain these images. It, you could answer just about all the outstanding questions on the shroud, which is very considerable. But it could probably test every image-forming hypothesis, every explanation for the shroud's aberrant radiocarbon date. It could answer all the off-image questions, uh, some of which we've we've touched on, as well as all the on-image questions still outstanding from the Shroud of Turin. We have nothing to lose and everything to gain by testing the shroud. Mm. Now, when we're talking also, something that I don't think you said about the flowers I think is particularly interesting as well is these are flowers that would only have been blooming around the season of Passover in Israel that are found also, right? Well, yes, that that would be the spring. Uh-huh. Um, I think Passover changes uh, uh, like Easter does. Uh-huh. Yeah, it, it, it does, but around the springtime and such. Yes. And so if a forger is going to do this, they have to go to Jerusalem and get these specific flowers that would be blooming this time and just somehow disperse them across the shroud proportionately. Yes, and, and he'd have to get some from uh, Turkey as well. Now, that is one of the few things that a forger could forge. Now, mm-hmm. he, in the Middle Ages... He never would have had any idea that 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 these pollens could subsequently be identified uh, centuries later. But mm-hmm. that he could possibly he could he could forge. Right. At least it's physically possible. But yeah. many of these other features are not physically possible. Yeah, I, I think it it's kind of in many cases we have a sort of cumulative casing. When I, when I talk to critics of the resurrection, I mean, yeah, you could come up with an explanation to explain one piece of data for a resurrection maybe. But the thing is, can you come up with something that explains 
all the pieces of data combined. And that makes it incredibly difficult. I mean, there are a few things on the shroud that we can argue, yeah, I mean, a forger could do some right. of these things, but all of them together, and the case starts getting a bit harder. Exactly, and the same thing goes with the events that happen to this body. The proof that you'd have, the 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 in terms of billions of items of 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 um, radioactive atoms, um, you 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 could you when I say you could prove the central premises of Christianity, as far as the events of the Passion, Crucifixion, Death, Burial, and, and a miraculous event that's completely consistent with the Resurrection. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and when it occurred, and where it occurred, and to whom it occurred, the evidence, it may not be 100%, but boy, it's 98%. Mm-hmm. And no other religion would have any such objective and independent evidence to the level of 1%. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't 100% uh, prove these events occurred, but, right. but we can prove 98% of the events as well as the features on the image, like you said. Yeah, it's history. We can't do 100% proof, but we do go by high, high probability. What's the best explanation of the yes. evidence? And I'd like to remind everyone that if you're skeptical of miracles in general, I advise you to go back to 2013, the first year of the show, where I interviewed Craig Keener on his book, Miracles, very aptly titled. And you'll find several, several accounts of miracles. They definitely would give you something to think about if you're skeptical of miracles. Now, Markham, what is the atomic testing that you'd like to see done on the Shroud? Um, our foundation is developing and, and perfecting um, the, the ability to detect and count uh, radioactive atoms in limestone, in blood, in linen, and even uh, charred material that would have been behind the patches on the Shroud of Turin as a result of the fire of 1532 that we talked about earlier. Right. You can detect these radioactive atoms, including the radioactive atom carbon-14. Mm-hmm. In, in all these materials. We want to perfect these techniques and only when they're perfected and can be repeated every time and accurately measured every time on control mm-hmm. linen and human blood samples and, and on charred material and in limestone, then we'd like to test them on, on the shroud and mm-hmm. on its blood marks and, and we're just talking about tiny tiny samples right. because they are destructive but mm-hmm. we would do all these testing on the same sample you would take fragments of the sample from all over the sample mm-hmm. so that so that each element that you're testing for each radioactive atom all came from the whole piece of the sample and um, so it would tell you that it was irradiated with neutrons and when the event occurred and what the source of the neutrons was 
and if you if Jesus's tomb is intact when I say you could determine where this event occurred I mean you could even determine which burial tomb this occurred in whether it was Jesus's reputed burial tomb um, or not and um, you would have uh, all of these atoms not only occur at known rates it's at rates that are known to scientists they disappear at different rates all of which are known to science mm -hmm. and it allows uh, the measurement of all those things I said but the good thing about it is they would each corroborate each other you should get the same results you just have different calculations uh, with the linen with the blood with the charred material and with the limestone mm -hmm. and um, um, that just corroborates each other when you get the same results on four different sets of samples from various locations mm -hmm. uh, throughout the shroud and some of these things have already been removed from the shroud when when the when the patches were removed and the charred material was vacuumed from the cloth in 2002 it, it was it's still contained in bottles right now that are labeled and, and uh, so they've already been removed from the shroud if Jesus's burial tomb is intact you would only need a small amount of limestone uh, to find these radioactive atoms and it, it's all laid out in the book but um, the tomb if, it, if it's intact you could find these atoms now and then this would help you um, for for what locations you want to select uh, on the shroud itself what linen samples you want to take an off image and an on image sample um, and and you want to take some blood samples um, as well but you would find different amounts of these atoms in all these samples and, mm -hmm. and, and uh, it would be um, they could not be found in the amounts or the distribution on the shroud or in these materials uh, unless they were radiated with particles with, with neutron particles you know, when you said that some of these atoms would disappear more time and such is there been a certain time frame we need to do these tests in or is this kind of thing if this would take millions of years so it'd be great to get this but it's not a major rush well with all the the wars and conflicts going on in the world today in mm -hmm. which religion is a is a is a is a contributing factor or a direct cause or an underlying element um, why not look at the core mm -hmm. evidence for each religion mm -hmm. and this is objective and independent evidence people could make intelligent choices as to these decisions and mm -hmm. these decisions literally mean life and death for the countries and the regions of the world in which these these religiously based wars and conflicts are going on this could not only have a benefit to each person from an eternal sense but it could benefit the world in, in a, you could have more of a world at peace but let's face it religious wars are expanding in our mm -hmm. generation they're mm -hmm. not decreasing mm -hmm. 
So it could have a benefit for for all the world in in an immediate sense, if you would, as well as a personal sense in helping you to find answers to some of the most fundamental questions of all. Mm. And 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 these answers could also I. Uh, it's just this isn't nothing profound. This is just very orthodox. But the answers to these questions could also give you life after death, eternal mm-hmm. life after death. Mm-hmm. You know, you've talked about this, these tests that you'd like to do and such. Is there anything that's preventing this right now besides just wanting to perfect all the tests before you do it? Is there anything else that's stopping these tests from going on? Um, physically, no, but I need to make these tests known to the public so mm-hmm. that the public is aware of this and would 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 like to see this happen. Um, it's it's hard for to to get a an avenue just to um, the Vatican, mm-hmm. and this has been the case uh, throughout my 34 years of research. It's it's very institutional. The world knows very little about the Shroud of Turin. I want the world to know about it. I want the Vatican to know about it as well. There's many people throughout the world that knows very little about this, and and it's it's perhaps relevant to every individual alive, every mm-hmm. individual who will ever die. I I want to to put this evidence out to all the world and yes it's hard to get people to to take an interest in this and it's just a matter of education though is what I think mm-hmm. the, the the technology needs to be developed further and perfected but that's the only physical preclusion to this testing is mm-hmm. is the advancement and development and and we could use your donations to help us mm-hmm. this money would go to the spreading of the information, the dissemination of the information to the world and to the scientific uh, testing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm just wondering that if the group was allowed to study the shroud for carbon dating and such in 1988, then why would it be so, why would they be opposed to any further atomic testing such I mean I can understand it could take a long time to arrange as I'm sure the Pope isn't exactly on speed dial for a lot of people but uh, is Vatican really opposed to some research on the shroud now or what they're not they're not opposed to it they just take a neutral position this mm-hmm. my book just came out um, recently and it needs to be to um Many people in in sendinology, that's the study of the shroud, uh, many people who have studied the shroud are not aware of of what testing the shroud at the atomic and the molecular levels could accomplish. Mm-hmm. So, so there's just a few of us that right now know about it, and hopefully your viewers know about it, and hopefully it gets much more attention um, in the media, not only the the Christian media, but the mainline media mm-hmm. um, throughout the world. Um, and, and that includes many people in Italy uh, or the Vatican that, that aren't that familiar with the Shroud. It, it has been, um, there's a lot of myths about the Shroud of Turin. And just like it was deemed to be a painting for centuries, 
that radiocarbon dating I do not think is accurate and it's not so much that they counted the number of carbon-14 atoms incorrectly they just don't understand that there's a an additional amount that was caused by neutrons but you could prove these neutrons really did irradiate the shroud because of the presence of all three radioactive atoms and many of the people in the scientific world don't know this and are somewhat afraid of it um, mm -hmm. but it's all sound scientific testing techniques it's all valid evidence and um, there there was supposed to have been another series of testing that occurred in 1988 and the, and the radiocarbon scientists at the time um, particularly their leader Harry Gove did all he could to to eliminate these other tests now they weren't the atomic and molecular testing that I'm talking about because they weren't nearly as advanced as they are now but they prevented uh, they lobbied and did everything they could and they were successful they eliminated testing the shroud in 25 other areas mm -hmm. of, of science and it's the whole total picture like you say that that should be should be learned and and many of these tests would would have been like these other things we've been talking about um, that, uh, that go to the provenance or the origin of the cloth in terms of its age and its locale and 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 uh, and where the, the plant was grown from and where it was manufactured and um, its age and origin mm -hmm. those also should have been done the radiocarbon scientists if you could fault them it's for that and when they saw the results they 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 should have said that there's too many the dates that they were getting the figures that they were getting were outside the 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 normal forms of of of, of, of systematic accuracy and there's there is many indications what you don't realize their sample was from the lower left hand corner of that cloth as the samples went up a little bit just just a couple hundred millimeters the ages get younger that's just starting to get toward the body and that's on the edge of the cloth on the lower left hand side they they should have and what they did was they they didn't they didn't they then averaged some dates that they had so that the numbers were tighter. They should not have done that. They should have they should have asked for samples from another location and it would have it would have shown a fundamentally different result. They should have done that. And they they and they should have they were supposed to share all their the raw data with other analyzing institutions they did not do that these other institutions could have seen there's more outliers than they should have been there was no need to average some of these outliers together mm -hmm. they averaged the dates from from one of the laboratories results uh, that were taken over two days they just averaged the daily dates um, it's it's spelled out in more specific terms in my book but if they're to be faulted it's for those things they counted the carbon 14 atoms correctly but they're attributing they're they're concluding that all the carbon 14 atoms that they measured remained from the flax plant 
from the from the time it was a plant. Mm -hmm. But there's more carbon-14 in there from another source. And that's what these testing at the atomic and the molecular levels would prove, would prove irrefutably. Mm -hmm. it's, not, it's not a new advocate. We're not advocating something new that, that neutrons create carbon-14. That's been known for, for decades. And, and just to give you another idea how uh, neutron radiation could not possibly have been forged, neutrons weren't even known. Mm -hmm. until 1932. Mm -hmm. they, when they were discovered, um, James Chadwick, I think, was his name. He received the Nobel Prize for discovering that. But it's not something a medieval forger could ever have done. Mm -hmm. I, I think one of the problems that usually happens is the reputation of a shroud precedes it. Not for real reputation, but for rumors I've been shared about. I mean, I know Gary Habermas when he's talked to me about it, and by the way, for anyone interested, uh, Gary Habermas is going to be on our show again this year, the Saturday before Easter, to talk about the resurrection. He, he told me he was going to read up on that topic just for the show, so uh, we, we can be thankful he's doing some special research just for the show here, but he's, uh, I mean, I remember him telling me about how when he goes out and he does debates, and he's said this on some shows before he's been on that, uh, he'll have all these pieces of data he'll use to show the resurrection happen, and he says, if I have to, the last one, I'll use the Shroud of Turin as well. And I think the thing is, unfortunately, we live in an age where there's great skepticism of anything like this, and, and you go on the Internet, you see all these quotes being shared on Facebook, and you can easily look and see a, a lot of them are fakes, and so we just go and say, yeah, I don't want to be fooled by a fake. I don't want to be caught gullible again. So I just don't think I should take my chances with a shroud. And do, do you see that kind of thing going around a lot? Yes, people have are not basing their opinions on the evidence, and they're giving they're they're basing upon pre uh, upon reputations. Um, uh, some of which uh, go back to the Middle Ages. Mm -hmm. And the shroud needs to be looked at scientifically and objectively. And um, that, that this is an opportunity uh, for the world to look at this question objectively and independently. Like I say, m the vast majority of this evidence cannot be forged and it does not occur naturally. Mm-hmm. You know, when we're uh, talking about the Shroud and how people are so skeptical, I mean, the thing is, it's fine to be skeptical. And, of course, people should be skeptical. But, unfortunately, in our day and age, skepticism has been seen as itself a virtue. Instead of going out and saying, I'm skeptical, but I'm going to try and see what the best cases. I mean, I, I meet many people who I say, yeah, go read Craig Keener's Miracles. You're a skeptical miracle. So, no, no, I, I, I don't want to read books. Just give me the best ones you can find. And every time I think, you're not really interested in this if you're not willing to put forward the effort to do the study that you should be doing. Uh, exactly. Um, 
Uh, I've tried to research this uh, as extensively mm -hmm. as I can uh, as an attorney, but I mean, for centuries, um, humanity has wondered about mm. religious matters. Right. And and no religion has ever had any objective or independent evidence to to prove their claims. Now you could have this, and no matter what your background, whether you have any religion or you're a Christian, or you believe in another religion, the question is as central and basic to you as anyone else. We, Every one of us is going to die, mm -hmm. and we don't know what happens afterward. If this guy really did resurrect from the dead, yeah. this is relevant to all of us. This mm -hmm. same individual clearly says, from the same sources where these events are first mentioned, he says that that if you believe in his resurrection, you too can have life after death, even though you, you, you die. And we are all going to die. It's only a question of when and not if. This evidence is relevant to everyone, and this is very unfakeable and very objective and very independent, and the whole world should look at this regardless of what the outcome is going to be and regardless of where we're sitting at in our present condition. It's, it's just unprecedented, and we need to, to investigate it. If I'm remembering, in fact, the chapter that you talk about, this position, is called Humanity's Right, isn't it? Yes, yes, mm -hmm. yes, yes. Well, Mark, I, I think we're getting near the time, unfortunately, we do have to be coming towards the end. I really hope that this has, you know, if you're still skeptical of a shroud out there, I can understand with skepticism, but I hope this is at least giving you something. I've been skeptical, but maybe I should give a second. Like, I mean, like I said, whatever you got to lose, and if you're someone like me, you've got several great arguments for resurrection already. What's the harm in having one more? Well, Mark, if uh, people want to find out more about you and what you're doing, do you have a blog or website where people can get in touch with you? Yes, uh, my website is uh, testtheshroud.org or testtheshroud.com, and I've tried to lay out as much of this evidence in as basic and understandable manner uh, as, as I can. Uh, it's still, it's still, uh, there's, there's just a lot of this evidence, but that's a nice problem if there's a lot of evidence for the reader to consider. And um, um, I named the the, uh, the book and the foundation have the same name, Test the Shroud. And right now it's, it's, it's available not only on the website and on Amazon.com, but we're, we're just starting out and we're going to do all we can to get it distributed in bookstores and, and make it accessible um, overseas and, and every place that we can. But um, you could help us do all those things. We would appreciate it. Um, um, just like uh, Nick, our foundation is, is largely dependent upon on the viewer. Yeah. And if anyone's interested in that, uh, you can go to Amazon and just put in Mark Antonacci or Test for Shroud. I see the book right here. It's available right now at the time of the broadcast for twenty nine ninety five. That's only in hardcover. Unfortunately, nothing out there yet for a you Kindle enthusiast, much like myself. But hey, that could be coming in the future. We're hmm. we're we're planning on uh, making it available 
in other formats as well. Um, but um, um, right now, it's it's um, it's only available in hardback. But mm-hmm. um, uh, we are going to update the edition every year as well. And then we want to start making it available electronically. We want to do a documentary as well. But you could you could get a a, a very thorough discussion of all the evidence right now and um, um, uh, I've laid it out as basically as I could if I, I, I'm going to come out in, in more condensed versions but right now it's only fair to lay it out in as, as much of the evidence as as I can with all the relevant items of evidence as I could and I I, I, um, I, I couldn't make it any shorter. Well, that that's fine. Me, I, I happen to have a habit of reading long books. Anyway, and yeah, people, this one is definitely very thorough. Um, now, I'd like to remind everyone about it. N- next week, we're not next week, but in two weeks, I'm going to have my current pastor Matthew Peepars come on, talking about church planting and apologetics. But um, well, now, Mark, I'd like to just thank you for coming on, and hopefully, we'll see you back here again sometime. Nick, I'd love to be back. We are, I remind everyone that, uh, like I said, we're going to be here in two weeks again. And we will be coming live from, well, not live, but we'll be coming from Atlanta. Now, I am Nick Peters, and I am signing off. <laughs>